I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. <laughs> you're listening to The Ghost Files, the podcast where everyday people share their extraordinary experiences of the spirit world. I'm your host, Karina Machado. I'm the author of Spirit Sisters and other books full of true stories of the paranormal. Now I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to share true stories of mystery and marvel in a new way through my podcasts, Spirit Sisters and The Ghost Files. I'm always so happy to read your feedback. So if you love what you're hearing, please take a moment to rate and review. My guest this week, Hannah Boys, has a passion for the paranormal And it's a passion which launched her into a part-time career as a paranormal investigator on a quest for evidence that would validate her lifetime of experiences. For Hannah, who's 25, it all started in childhood, growing up in the north of England in a 16th century house with a mortician's slab in the cellar. Hannah's family moved to Australia when she was still a little girl But if she thought that meant leaving the spirits behind with the ancient villages and the creepy houses, she was in for a surprise, as she's about to tell us now. Hi, Hannah. Thank you for joining us on The Ghost Files. Oh, thank you for having me. It's really great to have you. Now, before we launch into the childhood events that kind of planted the seed of your lifetime's work, please just tell us a little about who you are today and what your life is like. Well, I'm 25 and I live on the Mornington Peninsula. I work full-time in the steel industry, but I also study full-time in um, psychological science and criminology. Okay, that's lots of things going on there. You work full-time and you study as well. Yeah, pretty full-on. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay, well, let's now go back to another place and another time when you were growing up in the chilly north of England. You were four, Hannah, when you saw your first spirit, except you didn't realise then that that's what he was, right? That's right. So I used to live in a small village called Saltaire in West Yorkshire, and um, the village was created as a textiles mill, by a textiles mill owner called Titus Salt, and he created the whole village for all of his workers around the 17th century. And we moved into one of these tiny little homes, and I just have this vivid memory of this sepia-toned little boy and I didn't really have a any other name for him other than his colour so I used to call him Honey. We just used to play and I just used to see him and it wasn't until I got older that I realised oh maybe that wasn't the little shadow boy that I thought I was seeing, maybe it was something I was seeing. So you thought he was your imaginary friend? I did, I thought he was my imaginary friend, yeah for sure. I wonder how many imaginary friends are actually spirit children. <laughs> Who knows, they say that children have a Um, heightened sense of connection with the spirit realm. So maybe that's what it was. Yeah. Now, describe for us in a bit more detail what Honey looked like, what he was wearing, how he presented and all of that. So for me, Honey was just a a little boy who was sort of a caramel brown tone um, and he just looked dirty. Like he just looked like he'd been 
playing in some mud. Like he, he was just a dirty, dirty little boy. But for me, I didn't really care about that. I just had a friend to play with. You would play together? Yeah. He used to hide under my bed. That's what I remember him just poking his head out and then we'd play as four-year-olds, just hide and seek and all those fun things. So he was about your age? I would say from memory, yes. We were around the same height, so that's how I would tell. (laughs) So do you remember touching him at all? No, no. Okay. Now, how long did you think you saw him for? I can't remember seeing him after we moved out of that house. So I probably saw him up until I was between four and five. Okay. Yep. Now, you mentioned the village and that it was a, a mill town and child labour was really common, I would assume, in the past. Yeah, so of course. Who yeah. do you think he was, this boy? I believe he was probably just one of the children of the workers. So the mill, they needed chimney sweeps, they needed, you know, any kind of child labour. We're talking 16th, 17th, 17th century England, um, you know, there wasn't exactly child labour laws around then. So that's my assumption. Yeah, and it's a good one. And so maybe that's why he was dirty. He was a chimney sweep. I, well, that's what I've drawn the conclusion to. <laughs> yeah, I don't have any proof. I don't have any. I just have my memories. Yes, yeah. And very interestingly, though, your grandmother saw him as well. She did. So she told me um, later on in life when we started to discuss my investigating, which I'm sure we'll go into later. Yeah. But she told me that she was staying over to babysit me one night and she'd seen or felt a little boy's hand on her head. And when she looked up, she just saw a little shadow there. And, I, you know, later, years later in my life, I've gone, maybe that was honey that she saw. Yes, it could have been him, which would truly suggest that that was no sort of quote-unquote imaginary friend if someone else is seeing him too, an adult. Well, I put two and two together as an adult and went, oh, <laughs> okay. Intriguing. Now, a few years later, when you were around eight years old, your family moved into a restored church in another village. Now, I I really want you to tell our listeners about this home because it's the kind of home that would be alien to most of us as we simply don't have houses that are this old in Australia. Please um, describe this unique place for us. Well, this house was based at the bottom of the village in a town called Bailden. Um, Welcome to look it up. Bailden, did you say? Bailden, yeah, so B-A-I-L-D-O-N. Okay. And just adjacent to the other village that we used to live in. Yeah, the house was at the bottom of the village and it was originally served as the town's church. So everyone would have gone there for medical reasons, for worship, for school. Everything would have been done at that place. And um, it was renovated during the early 19th century into a school and it was used up until the end of the war as a World War II as a school um, when it was renovated and it, they added separate floors in, so altogether it was five stories tall. And then it was sold as a home. And my auntie and her husband bought the place, and we moved in with them when we found out we were moving to Australia. So we sold up all of our house and property and moved in with her. <laughs> okay. And how long did you live in this place for, this five-story ancient property? I, I think total it was nearly two years Okay, that we lived there. Yeah. And it had something quite strange in the cellar. Yeah, so as I said, it was five stories. So there was three living stories, an attic and a cellar area. And as a child, we would just go down there because we would keep all of our big equipment down there, like freezers, lawnmowers, bikes, that sort of thing. Never put two and two together, but they had a big room down there that was all blackened out. 
And in the centre of the room as well, there was this big stone table. And into more research into it, the blackened out room was a furnace and the stone table would have been as mortician's table. And all still original, all still intact, all still there. But, yeah, quite interesting. And so do you think that's because, as you said, the church in the 1500s would have, and the 1600s would have been this multi-purpose building? So people went there for everything and including, so if someone passed away, the mortician would, you know, the funeral director would deal with them downstairs and that's what you were seeing, that table. Is that right? Absolutely. I'm not sure if it would be a formal process such as uh, yeah, yeah. autopsies and that sort of thing, but definitely for a storage area for bodies, yeah, that's what it would have been used for. But when you were living there, you didn't know that. You just no, no, no. <laughs> It's probably a good all. thing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, sum up for us, please, Hannah, the experiences that you had in this house. That house, I never saw an entity or an apparition per se, but it was where I started to develop my awareness of energy. I started to sense energy. Little things happened, like lights would flick on. One time the bath filled up on its own. The toilet would flush, that kind of thing, all on its own. Which, you know, when you're a child, I was about eight or nine at this time. It wasn't that big of a deal. It was still a bit frightening, mm. but it wasn't wasn't anything like seeing a, a full apparition in front of you. But Definitely around the cellar area was where I became very aware of the negative energy. And it's not just because you're a child and, you know, going down into the dark is scary. It was a genuine feeling of something's not right, something's a bit oppressive here. Not understanding what those feelings are, but knowing something's not right, for sure. So do you think you were picking up on some sort of residual energy of the trauma that had taken place or grieving families or what do you think it was that you were feeling that oppression down there? Definitely a residual energy. I don't believe it was an intelligent energy, more so because we never had that contact, which I think I probably would have been able to do at that stage, but because I was so young, I wouldn't have known what to do with, but yeah. I never had that. I do think it was residual just because it was constant. It didn't fade. It didn't come and go. It was always there. And so the age of that building, do you believe that the older a building is, the more residual energy would be within there, within the fabric of the building? I do believe in the stone tape theory, yeah. which is similar to what you're suggesting, and the building was made of sandstone. So I do believe that that sort of mineral can absorb an energy and always release it. Obviously, previous guests have mentioned energy doesn't dissipate. It always is around. And perhaps if a building has that ability to create energy, it also has that ability to store it. So mm. I do believe that is probably what happened with that property. Okay. Now, at around the age of 12, your family made the big move across the world to Australia. And Hannah, you thought that would be the end of your spooky energies and spooky experiences and sensing energies. <laughs> I wanted it to be at the time. <laughs> but it wasn't. No, it was not. Okay. Well, let's, let's set this up for our listeners. So tell us about this emotionally kind of challenging period of your life and how you suspect that that might have led to a flowering of your psychic abilities. I'm not sure I would say it was psychic abilities, but I definitely believe it's been an intuition that I've had that most other people haven't had the opportunity to develop. Okay. I believe during that time I had quite an emotional period of saying goodbye to all of my family in the UK and moving to Australia. I was 12 at the time. It was very rough to just, you know, leave everyone and move, not know anyone here, no friends, starting a new school. Obviously, 12 years old is a, you know, going into teenage years is pretty 
a pretty trying time already. Absolutely. um, Yeah. Yeah. I just think that emotionally I matured a lot quicker because of it. And it started to make me aware of my surroundings a lot more. Okay. And how did this manifest? When you say that you began to become more aware of your surroundings, what did you sense? It was more just a, I knew that we weren't alone. And I started to remember my childhood. I started to remember honey. I started to remember events that had happened at the other house. It just, I knew something was different in the world. And I was okay with it, but I was still frightened by it. And then at around this time, you saw your first full-bodied apparition. Yes, I did. Now, that was one of the, and it still is, one of the scariest events that have ever happened to me. And I've seen different things since then, but nothing quite like this. Please tell us. Tell us what you saw. I was lying in bed. I would have been 12 still. Uh, It was still the first year of moving to Australia. My mum and dad had said bedtime's 9.30 and of course I was 12 years old. I did not want to listen to mum and dad. I was playing my Game Boy. (laughs) I was playing Pokemon at the time and it was probably just after midnight and I looked at the time and went, if they catch me, I'm in so much trouble. (laughs) (laughs) So I decided, okay, time for bed. I put the Game Boy down and because I'd been having all these thoughts about the other world, so to speak. I just didn't want to go to sleep. I was having quite lucid dreams, vivid dreams as well. And just going to sleep was quite frightening because I I felt so restless by being asleep. I just was sitting up in bed and all of a sudden, it wasn't like it was this big scene or this big bang. Nothing really alerted me other than this woman just walked into my bedroom. She didn't open the door. She didn't do anything like that. She just just walked into my bedroom and she walked to the end of my bed and then she walked out and that was it. Did she walk out th- in and out through the door? She, no, she walked well through the doorway. She just walked into my bedroom. She didn't look at me. She didn't say anything. She didn't make any eye contact. She just walked to the end of the wall towards the window and then turned around and walked straight back out. Did and it, it was phenomenal. I was so scared, though. <laughs> did it look just like a living woman suddenly appearing, a stranger in your room? It was very dark in my room, obviously, because I had no light on. Um, but it did look like a person, not a flesh and blood person, but still a person that had walked in. I couldn't distinguish much of her features, but she had her hair in the bun and she had a long either dress or a skirt on. Who do you think she was? I don't know. I, I think maybe I, – I don't believe she was an attachment of mine. I believe maybe she was just from the house and because that time everything was quite heightened for me, I'd just seen her. I just connected with her and nothing – as I said, she didn't say anything to me but it was just such a – now that I look back on it, it was such a defining moment for me. But at the time, let me tell you, I was terrified. <laughs> Well, I'm so scared. Oh my goodness, I can't begin to imagine. Now you mentioned the house. So, was there anything interesting or of note about the house that you were living in? Obviously, it was completely different to the 16th century five-story place in England. But what was this yeah. house like? It was nothing notable. It was just a 60s Australian house. The only difference for me is that most houses in England are double story and this was a single story. Okay. That was the only notable difference. And everything else was 
it was just a normal house. A normal house. Until what? after then. <laughs> yeah. And what, what state? Where, where were you living? In Victoria. Okay. Yeah, I've always been in Victoria. Always been there. Okay. Yeah. So how did this experience affect you? Like not just in the immediate aftermath, but also in terms of, you mentioned that it was a defining moment. So in terms of the life path it would put you on. This event changed my life wholeheartedly. My family had been completely open my entire life about that they believed in the spirit realm and not pushed it on me saying that they'd had this experience and that experience, but that it was very real and it was something that anyone could experience, but no one that I knew had because no one would share that with a child normally. For myself to have that experience, it was validating because, okay, this does exist, which was also extremely terrifying because for me that means hold on, some people can remain on this planet when they've gone. That that blew my mind. Mm. But I was so scared. I, I can't tell the fear that I experienced. And it lasted for months. It was this sinking gut feeling of just fear. And when you're going through that as a child, you don't know how to process those emotions because it's not something you should ever experience. And I felt very isolated and alone I didn't have anyone I could really talk to about it. I put in my mind, this is not something that I want any part of. I don't want anything to do with the paranormal. I don't want anything to do with that sort of realm. That's too much for me to handle. So that's and interesting. That's where I left it. Even though yeah. your awareness had begun to open up, this, in a sense, kind of sealed it. You thought, no, I'm not going there. I don't want anything to do with that. Exactly. That's where I left it as far as I was concerned. It was never going to happen again. And then at around this time, Hannah, you had more upheaval in your life. You're dealing with, as you said, you know, those tricky years of early teenage years, you know, puberty and immigration, which is a very traumatic thing. Uh, I'm from a family of immigrants and I know that how hard it must have been for my parents. But you very sadly had to also deal with the loss of, did you say eight family and friends at this point? It was... Yeah, between the age of 12 and 16, it was eight people that we lost. Yeah, that very rough time. Very rough. How did this impact you and how did this, again, sort of lead you in a circuitous way back to paranormal interest and or fascination? I suppose when you've lost that many people, most people don't lose that many people in their entire life, never mind in their early childhood. And it was very difficult to process the grief and emotion that I felt, especially because the majority of those people were in the UK and we couldn't go over there to mourn. We couldn't go to funerals. We couldn't attend these sort of closing events of people's lives that gave us closure. So to process that alone, well, you had your, I had my mum and my dad and my sister, they all live here, but, it's a process that you have to go through alone because you're at a different life stage and you're at a different level in your yes. understanding. Yes. And, um, yeah, it was, it was very – I just – at this stage, I was coming out of the end of this period. I was turning 15 or 16 and I just needed answers. I needed more answers. Surely someone out there in this world has experienced the things that I've experienced. Now, I had all the evidence that I needed. I'd been through enough in my life to know that this exists but surely there had to be proof from other people as well some surely somewhere someone was going through what I was going through so you wanted to find a sense of community you wanted to find someone with an affinity that you could you know you could share with 
I wanted someone to have a conversation with mm. me where I wouldn't be labelled as crazy or, or that's ridiculous or I don't believe in that. I wanted someone to be able to share, wow, that's insane that you have saw a lady walk through your room and you lived in a five-storey renovated church. <laughs> I wanted someone to, to share that likeness. Obviously, no one's going to have that likeliness that I had, but just something, you know, maybe they'd seen something in their childhood and they didn't know how to process it. So that's why I started to look into face my fears and just experience what this was, whatever it was. And in what way did this sort of um, conviction that you had that you were now going to delve back into this realm that you had closed off, how did this help you to deal with the loss of your family and friends in England? It was just an understanding that this life, maybe the one that we're living is finite, but everything else is not. And it was a very, not a relief, but extremely comforting to acknowledge that perhaps in whatever form it is, something else is carrying on. Mm, That is a very comforting idea. So that led you to begin to want to investigate, is that right, Hannah, and collect evidence? Yeah, well, I thought there's no other way to tell than to try and experience what I experienced again. There's no other way to reaffirm my thoughts and feelings than, than go and find out. I'd watch TV shows, the popular TV shows out there, and they'd given the evidence that I was looking for, but none of them ever seemed scared. They were always in awe of the things that they caught, which was so motivating and positive for me because that's all I wanted. I wanted a good, wholesome experience out of this traumatic few years of my life. Right. It had to equate to something. Right, So yes. that's when I started to investigate. And you were still so young when you did your first investigation. I mean, you're still so young now. <laughs> so you were only 18. Now, tell us, where was this investigation that you participated in and did anything memorable happen? I'd gone back to England to visit my grandmother and my the rest of my family. And um, while we were there, we'd taken a trip up to Scotland. And I'd been telling my nana about all of these things that had happened, um, especially the woman walking into my room and just sharing experiences with her. And she became very open. That's when she told me the story about how she'd felt honey when I was a child and different experiences that she'd had throughout her life. And she said, why don't you do a tour while you're in Scotland? Like, what better place? I thought, well, she's right. Yeah. <laughs> so we went to the vaults underneath Edinburgh. Right. That's where we did our first investigation. And what happened? Anything? We had a few little things, but I probably was more scared to pay attention, (laughs) to be honest. One of the key events that I took from that was um, we were in one of the vaults and it was about 10 degrees, pretty cold, um, mild summer night, I would say, for Scotland. And I was just starting to sweat just absolutely profusely in this vault and I couldn't figure it out. I took off my jacket, I took off my jumper and um, I had to leave eventually because I just couldn't. I was just so warm. I was uncomfortable. The guide came up to me afterwards and he said, were you all right? And I said, oh, I'm just very hot. I think it's just nerves. Don't worry about it. And he said, no, no. One of the popular stories that we get from that vault is that it used to have people living in there. They used to live under the town and it caught fire and eight people passed away in there from a fire. And one of the common reports from people who visit here is that they get very hot in that cell. He said, it doesn't happen too often, but I can often pick it out and you look like you were one of them. 
And I thought, well, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> the that's... first one I've had an investigation out and I've had proof already. Very interesting. So, yeah. Hannah, you caught the bug, right? I definitely caught the bug from there on. Okay. So then back in Australia, four months later, I think it was, you investigated a site here, Arradale Asylum. Correct. I went up to Arradale and what a beautiful site. It is phenomenal. What is it? Tell us a little bit about Arradale Asylum. Where is it and what sort of facility was it and what is it today? Arradale Asylum is in Ararat, which is about an hour out of Ballarat, three hours out of Melbourne. And it was called a lunatic asylum. So they would take people with mental illness up there. It's on top of a hill at, at the entrance of Ararat and it was operational until 1994. People were just sent there basically to to be kept away from society. It's I, now. I didn't um, realise it had been in operation until the 90s. Yes, most of the asylums in Victoria were only closed down in 1994. Wow. Yeah. Um, it's open, owned by a university now. They do agriculture and wine, that sort of thing there now. Okay, so you had a kind of a frightening experience when you did this, which was your second investigation. I did. So it almost put me off, almost. <laughs> but there's um, a cellar in that facility as well. I'd not been in a cellar and since my early childhood, since that house. With so the mortician very, slab, yes, slap exactly. bang in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I um, was very apprehensive about going down there, but it was a part of the tour. Very common. They take you down there and they do the whole scene, you know, turn your light off, we want to create a vibe. So we did that and I was so scared. I was just, I still can't get over this initial fear of being on investigations, even though I know generally how it's going to go. I just always get very frightened. And my partner, he came up beside me and he put his hand just around my hip and um, that made me feel very comforted. I was very very glad that he did that. I was very scared. The guides giving their speech about the cellar was used for food storage and what it was for. And then he turned back on the lights and my partner was standing in front of me and there was no one behind me. And I had oh. never run up a flight of stairs faster in my life. <laughs> so that wasn't your partner who put his no, arm around you? I was actually very close to the wall, too close for someone to have moved around me. There was no one there. Even when the lights came on, I could still feel the arm. And I knew that my partner was in front of me. No one else on this tour would have touched me. I'm a stranger to them. And then and, um, you ran yeah, up the stairs. I ran up the stairs. <laughs> and I've actually never been back down there. I've been there many times now and I've never been back down there. Wow. And then something happened. Was it there that when you went back to the place where you were staying, something happened? Yes. That very yeah. night? So, yeah. So we used to live in a little granny flat type of situation at the back of my partner's parents' home. And we drove home, which is about a three and a half hour drive for us. About 6am, we're lying in bed just talking about the events of the night. Like, oh, that cellar was scary. And, you know, the men's criminally insane ward was scary. And we were just reminiscing about the night. And we just heard these almighty three massive bangs. They shook the windows of this little granny flat. It was so loud. And the front door just flew open. And we both sat up in bed alert, looking around, thinking, what was that? We still have, still have no explanation for it. That I think, is chilling. I think what occurred was I was very open to an experience occurring, very open to an energy, and I probably just wasn't careful enough and brought something home with me, I think. And it's very symbolic, the door flying open. Here it is. Here I am. Yeah, I'm home. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It wow. made itself known, that's for sure. <laughs> 
Oh, and since then, you've been determined to collect evidence that the afterlife exists. Now, why do you think you're so driven about this, about the evidential aspect especially? I just want to have that exploration of what is unknown to us. Everything is so up in the air or, or it's connected to a religion, which, which I'm not, but it's, it's a spirituality that is a part of this life. What, what is this? All these people who have these experiences, you've talked to hundreds of people. Mm. I've talked to hundreds of people. Everyone can't be wrong. That's not right. everyone's imagining this phenomenon. That's right. You know, something has to be happening. And I just want proof. And I want to be able to show people who tell me, you just imagined it. No, no, I didn't. Here's a photo. Here's a recording. Here's a video. You know, like I want to have that ready. And what would you say is the most compelling piece of evidence that you've uncovered since you began? Because now you hold your own investigations. I have caught a phenomenal EVP at Beechworth Asylum. So that's electronic Um, voice phenomena? Quite the story. A friend of mine decided that he wanted to undertake a straitjacket challenge that they hold there. I'm not sure if they do it anymore. This is quite a few years ago. Where was that? Sorry? At Beechworth Asylum. Oh, yes. You've got to tell us about Beechworth, actually. Actually, maybe let's backtrack because you've got quite an affinity with Beechworth Asylum. Tell us about this place and why it's captured your imagination. Then we'll go into that story. I just love the setting of Beechworth. I love the town that it's in. It's in Alpine region. It's just beautiful. The site itself, the buildings are so majestic and they're just so foreboding and just intriguing. I love it there. It's beautiful. So how many times have you held investigations there? I counted. It's been 13. That's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. What keeps you going back to that place? I don't know. (laughs) I've got this weird uh, pull to go there. And I think it's because of the amount of evidence that we've collected, but also I just feel so welcomed. Yes. Just by the buildings themselves. I don't feel frightened there. I don't feel threatened. I feel invited. Maybe that's something to be forewarned of, but... I, I I just like it. Okay. So now let's go back to the story. So you've been to Beechworth so often, so this is where you've done the bulk of your investigating. This is where you've collected most of your evidence. And you were going to tell us about the friend who did the straitjacket challenge, which involves <laughs> being locked up in a cell wearing a straitjacket as a former, not inmate, but what would you call them, patient, would have been yeah. in the past. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so that's not something that I would recommend doing or would want to participate in, but he decided that's what he wanted to do, and it's something that the tour guides at the time offered. Um, so he decided to do it, and it was in the men's criminally insane ward in a building called Grevelia on the site. He was left alone in one of the large rooms there, and as he was walking out, well, as he was walking to his corner and we were sending him down, I set down a voice recorder maybe 10 feet away from him, and he didn't know it was there. I'd hidden it, and I'd hidden the light. Um, so he couldn't see the red light on, so he couldn't tamper with it because he just didn't know it was there. Um, I locked that door, and then I left, just for safety's sake, I left two other people in the front of the building. They were sitting in the surgical room, and there was, of all things, a morgue table there. They were sat on top of the morgue table, and we'd gone into the adjacent building called Olivine, which is also a men's criminally insane ward. Um, The rest of the group were in there. There was about 15 of us, and then the three people were in this other building. And we... 25 minutes, 30 minutes in, we just hear this almighty scream and we all frantically ran, ran towards the building. Someone's been hurt. It didn't sound like a fear scream. It sounded like someone's 
been injured or something's happened. Right. You know, these properties, they're open to the, they're not open to the public, but they're open enough that someone could jump a fence, someone could come in, anyone could be around. We so were you thought nervous. someone was in danger? We thought someone was in danger, yeah. yeah. We ran over and the girls are already at the front door, um, snacking on the door to be let out. We opened the door and we just could not understand what they were saying. We could not get a clear understanding of what had happened. We went to see our friend in the straitjacket because we thought maybe he'd triggered it off. They were extremely just unaware of what had happened. He was looking around going, are the girls okay? I don't I don't know what's happened. I said, well, did you not hear the scream? And he said, oh, I heard the girls scream. I said, well, maybe that's what we heard too. And then um, I got home and I was checking through the evidence. I've got a little sound program on my computer. Yeah. And we heard this, this almighty initial scream. And then the two girls come in afterwards. And it's just like unlike anything I've ever heard before. And the only reason that I question it is because on this um, sound device, it has blue bars and red bars. Blue bars suggest that it's picking up dictation. It's hearing the voice. Whereas the red bars, they are too close. You're far too close into the recorder for it to pick up clear audio. And it was all red. Whoa, it so it wasn't the girls then? No, you can hear the girls on the recording and you can see in the on the program that it's all blue lines from the girls. Okay. But this initial voice is red and it's phenomenal. And it's not obviously the person in the straitjacket. You cleared that with him. Even if it was him, it wouldn't have shown up as red because he was too far away. Ah, okay. All right. And he was unaware. He just heard the girls scream. And when we questioned the girls afterwards, we asked them, why were you screaming? What happened? And they said that they saw someone running towards them. It's important to note at this point as well that this building is half, maybe three foot plasterboard and the rest is glass. So you can see the whole perimeter of the building, which is how they would have monitored as many patients as they did. Ah, okay, right. You're certainly very familiar with the whole layout and with the place. (laughs) <laughs> Probably too much. So, yeah. <laughs> now, I know that as much as you love investigating, you actually had to take a break from it, Hannah. Why was that? It was because I was just becoming too emotional about things. I was very attached and we started to have things happen at home. I was having very vivid dreams. It was just affecting my life a bit too much. I think I'd been too focused and too welcoming to whatever it the energy was and it is quite draining when you're constantly dealing with energy yes you don't have time to refresh yourself so yeah we had about two year break from everything just to let things calm down and recenter ourselves okay but you've started again I sure have (laughs) yeah okay the bug never goes away no, no. And you mentioned a couple of times the lucid dreams. Now, I know that this is really fascinating because even though you haven't been to Beechworth Asylum in four years, is that right, Hannah? I think the last time was 2015. Okay. Yeah. So even though there's been a big gap there, you dream about that place at least once a week. Yeah. And these are um, really not ordinary dreams. Tell us about them. Sometimes I dream as if I'm there. And a lucid dream is a dream that you basically are conscious in. So you can have control, you can walk around, you can do the things that you want to do. I do not want to be at this asylum in my dream, but that's the setting. So that's what I have to make do with. And I'm either investigating and I'm there as an investigator and I'm just going about a normal investigation. Sometimes something spooky happens. Sometimes nothing happens. It's just a normal night. 
Other times I'm transported into this world maybe 50 to, to 100 years ago and I'm with patients and I'm involved in everything. Like I'm there, I'm helping, I'm completely enthralled in this place and I can't explain why I'm still getting these dreams. I can't say I don't think it's past life regression. I don't think it's anything like that. I don't know, but I don't think. But I'm I'm there. You're there. I, it's like time travel. You're in the past. Yeah. Why I think I have such an affinity with this place is I can describe buildings that I've never been in. I can describe situations and I could walk around that place in the dark with my eyes closed. Now, I've been there a lot, but I don't think I've been there enough to navigate myself. Mm. And I can. Mm. And it is phenomenal. I don't know why. It I is. I that word, but that's how I... It's a good word. Now, what's interesting is there's a kind of resonance, I guess, because of your current studies in psychology. Could you share how your studies affect your perception of these people who were detained at Beechworth? And I guess in a way, the way it increases your compassion for their plight. So people could have been put into these asylums for absolutely anything. They could have been put in for postnatal depression, for learning disabilities, for PTSD, autism, even because it was in the rush of the gold rush, people who couldn't speak English properly were put into there. And it took two signatures to get you admitted to to the asylum and it took eight to get you out. So your chances of reintegrating into society were very slim. And I feel now studying the mental illnesses in my psychology degree, I have an understanding of the ways to communicate with people, the ways to talk to people, not just in the real life, but in the spirit life, I can get EVPs and I can get evidence from people just by rephrasing questions in a way that perhaps someone with a learning disability could understand or asking for a task to be done in a way that not everyday humans can can do, but people with these disabilities or illnesses can comprehend and think it's so important to getting the evidence that we need in this field to be able to adapt. And I think that's what my education brings to my investigating is that I can offer a different spectrum of tactics and skills towards investigating. It's very refreshing because it's very respectful. So you're treating them as patients whether they're alive or not. I would say it's just a human-to-human communication that a lot of, in my experience, investigators tend to get caught up in the fact that they're speaking to a spirit and not acknowledging and being respectful that if you believe that this was a person, you should treat them like a person. If they have something to say, why would you want to ask, are you there? Are you male or female? Like, it's so mundane. Mm. There needs to be something more to to the level that we communicate to to get the answers that we want. That is a really refreshing perspective because you're right, there is lots of sensationalism and, you know, just a surface kind of quality in these investigating sort of realms. And what you're suggesting and what you're implementing is actually really, really fantastic, I think. Well, thank you. I think it's a, not that the other mode of questioning isn't important, that sometimes is the only thing that these spirits can communicate is a yes or no answer. But there has to be more dynamics and more that we can bring to the table as investigators. We have the opportunity to speak and to present ourselves in however we want to. Maybe they don't and maybe there's a level of understanding that they don't have that we need to convey that we it's okay. We, we are there just to hear you no matter what you have to say. Indeed. 
Now, given your personal experience, your studies, your years of investigating, what do you think a ghost is? I, it's such a dynamic question. It's such a dynamic thought. There's so many options. Is it religion-based? Is it afterlife? Is it a person? I don't have the answers. I don't personally believe in a religion or anything to do with that. I don't believe that it always is a person. And I don't believe about this negativity that, oh, it's demonic. I can't say for sure that anything is like that. But I do think that, like I've mentioned before, energy never goes away. And I think there's a lot to explore. There's a lot there that perhaps energy just imprints itself. Or perhaps that some people like myself have been through an event in their life that has opened their brain chemistry or created some sort of connection in their minds that is more developed than other people. And we're just able to see and experience things that other people haven't physically developed in their brain. There's no you know, test for it. There's no evidence based on it. But that's what I think. I, I think people go through something and they awaken themselves and practice on their own mental state to be able to project and to be able to see. That's my opinion. It's, I'm not sure what it is, but it's something. <laughs> it's a good theory. I mean, as you say, it's a very complex mystery and I don't know that we'll ever get to the heart of it. But it's certainly interesting discussing all of the possibilities with people like you that have, you know, that expanded awareness. Yeah. If everyone was a bit more aware and a bit more open, I think there would be thousands of more cases of hauntings. <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness. I don't have enough hours to talk to everybody <laughs> that I need to talk to for the show. Now, um, Hannah, what's next for you? Where would you like to investigate next? I definitely think I'm going to make the trip up to Monte Cristo in June. Okay. And I, I definitely think I would like to head down to Port Arthur as well. But I'm also looking for something local. So I'd love to meet up with a local crew or, or do something around the Mornington Peninsula where we can just go and um, express our passion together. That sounds great. Now, on that note, is there anywhere that if a listener is interested in finding out more about your tours, about your work, your investigations, listening to your evidence, is there anything anywhere where they can go to see that? Sure. I have a page on Instagram called um, h.hauntsparanormal or I'm more than happy to pass on my details to you and they can contact the show and we can liaise like that. Fantastic. Yeah, please do yeah. that. Please do that. And Hannah, I can't let you go without asking you, what can an encounter with the dead teach us about living? It's very important to know that not everything we see and experience is unexplainable. Perhaps there is something rational about the reasons why something is happening, but also that not everything has an explanation. And sometimes we need to have an open mind and it can take us to all these unknown places. We can experience things that we've never thought were possible. It's important to look at things from both sides. Sometimes things have a reason and sometimes things don't. They're all very good things to keep in mind, especially, you know, the cool head. Keep a cool yeah. head about these encounters as well. That's, that's very valuable. Well, thank you, Hannah. It's been really interesting and mind-expanding to speak with you today. And uh, we're looking forward to hearing more about where your investigations take you in future. Thank you so much for having me and letting me share. It's been an honour. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on The Ghost Files. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Ghost Files. Make sure you rate, review and subscribe.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 